Will you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and the fellows have Bibles for anybody who needs one to follow along as we look at God's Word, Hebrews 6. Just get their attention, they'll get one to you, it's marked at Hebrews 6. One of the most important lessons for all of us to learn is also one of the most difficult challenges. We all need to learn the ability to trust someone over us, even when we can't see or understand what that person is doing. Good parents teach this to their children very early on. When I tell you to do something, you do it without asking why. The wise parent will indeed, from time to time, volunteer to tell the child why in order so that the child build confidence in the parents' directions so that they know that mom and or dad has a reason and a good reason. But we should also have times where we simply say, do as I tell you. Because we know that there may be occasions in which we require immediate response, allowing no time for explanation. A child who has been trained to obey his mother's voice will stop immediately when she yells to keep him from running in front of an oncoming car. A child who is trained in that way will respond to his father's direction to vacate an area quickly, even though the child may not see or sense any particular danger. We absolutely must learn to trust those in position over us, but it's also one of the most difficult challenges for us. As we grow older we realize we know a thing or two ourselves. And just because I'm not in charge doesn't mean I have no sense. What makes you and your way any better than mine? And it's particularly difficult when I don't know why you're requiring what you are. I see no reason for it, and it hasn't been explained. But think about times when someone must, they absolutely must, follow the direction of the one in charge or otherwise disaster is going to occur. If you're in the army and you're part of a mission to take an area, your commander has assigned you a particular task as part of the overall strategy. You don't know the whole plan. You don't even know much of the plan. But you have to perform your task for your safety and that of your fellow soldiers. All depend on it. And suppose the battle takes a turn for the worse and you're taking incoming fire, you're suffering numerous casualties, do you then determine that the commander's clueless and you take matters into your own hands and you do your own thing, you go solo? You radio your command and you're told, stay the course. You don't understand why. But you do as you're told because you've been well trained. And when the battle's all over, you've survived, but your side has lost the terrain and you have to retreat. And you wonder to yourself, why did we take all those casualties? Apparently for nothing. Do these people know what they're doing? But you find out later that another, more strategically important battle was being fought at the same time as yours. And because the enemy was so fully engaged with you in your area, your side was able to take the more important territory. You, in that case, were used as a decoy for something more important 
that you couldn't see at the time. Now, to use a bit less dangerous illustration, say you're on a football team. And the coach has drawn up a play that requires you to block an incoming linebacker twice your size. You do as you're told. You get pasted every time you run that play. A play with which your team gains almost no yardage. And you say, why are we doing this? Why am I doing this? Do these people have any idea what they're doing? But later in the game, after you've run that same play five or six times, you line up in the same formation, you perform the same seemingly futile task, but this time a wide receiver goes deep, the quarterback fakes a handoff to the running back, and what looked to the opposition like the identical useless play again is actually a long pass downfield that results in a touchdown. In all of those times that you lost yardage on that play, you were being prepared for something else, something you didn't see. Performing your task, playing your position, following your orders when you can't see why. It's one of the most important lessons but greatest challenges for all of us. Because though most of us haven't been in the service or perhaps played much football, we're all placed in situations in which we're called to follow even though we can't see the end game. And the alternative to that following is disastrous. To decide that because of our limited vantage point it doesn't make sense, so you take matters into your own hands and you go your own route and you place yourself then in danger along with those who depend on you to carry out your task or to play your position. The key is this. Do we believe what we cannot see? And some of you have said, perhaps even this week, I don't know why God allowed I don't see how I can live this way any longer. I really don't see any purpose in it. I don't understand why God would want me to be in this situation, in this miserable situation. And those doubts easily become then declarations. God wouldn't allow this. I can't live this way any longer. There is no purpose in it. God does not want me to live this way. Isn't that the way it goes? I can't see it, so it must not be right. And I ask you, friends, does God know what he's doing? Does God tell you the end game? Even if he doesn't often tell you the specifics on how you'll get there, indeed he does. Does not God guarantee your safe arrival at the ultimate destination? And does not this God use all events and all people to move you to that appointed end? And yet in the midst of our situation with our very narrow and limited perspective. We say, I can't see it. I'm going to go my own route. I'm going to abandon my post. I'm not going to play my position. I'm not going to fulfill my task. God has told us all of these promises, hasn't he? 
And the question is now, as always, do you trust him? And you see, friends, if you've been trained to trust the one or ones in charge, then you will be willing to follow even when you don't understand why. You'll be willing to obey even when you can't see what's going on. And the commander and the coach and the husband and the pastor and the government, all examples of people over us, they're all fallible. They can be and often are wrong, such that you develop reason not to trust them. Hear this. Even when you don't trust the human instrument, you trust the God who has placed that instrument in that position. The call in the home to that wife who submits to her husband who has shown virtually no leadership is not to trust him. It's to trust God. The call to that citizen who is under, chafing under a difficult, onerous government. As was the case when your New Testament was written, by the way. A guy named Nero was on the throne. Trust Nero? I don't think so. But trust God to work through this? Absolutely. We all know your boss is an idiot. Unless you're the boss. Right? Everybody's got an idiot for a boss. We know better how this should go. It may be that they've made blunder after blunder. You're not called ultimately to trust them, but to trust God. You can run the play that God has given you in that relationship, whatever it be. In that relationship, in that situation, you can perform your task in your home and at your job and with your children and in your church. Not ultimately because you trust the people involved, but because you trust the God who placed those people in your life. That would radically change the way many of us go about our daily routine, would it not? If we would adopt that perspective, and not just that perspective, it is the Bible's perspective. It is God's perspective. We're going to look today in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to see examples from God's word of those who have trusted God, though they couldn't see the end game. We're going to be reminded as to why we should trust God, come what may, though we can't see the end game as well. Let's pray together then. That God would allow us to leave this place newly committed in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church, as citizens of our country, to follow what God says about his leadership. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can have this time to look into your word, to gather in freedom at this place with these dear brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity because we do believe, though often we forget, that what we are opening before us right now is the bread of life. It is the word of the living God, as relevant today as it was when it was first penned 
thousands of years ago. Lord, we thank you that your word tells us how we're to behave in all the circumstances that you, our sovereign God, place us. And so we pray that we will have open hearts and attentive minds so that we can glorify you in the circumstances in which you have placed us because we believe that you're at work even though we don't always see what you're doing. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two weeks ago, we looked at the end of chapter 5 of the book of Hebrews. It was two weeks ago because last week we had week off from our study of the book of Hebrews because it was ordinance Sunday we observed the Lord's table during our worship hour at the end of chapter 5 the writer of Hebrews chastises his readers and he tells them you may recall as we saw two weeks ago that by this time you ought to be teachers but instead you have to be taught the elementary truths of the faith all over again You can only take milk and not solid food, he says to them. And because you are in that position, having experienced stunted spiritual growth, not progressing in your faith, you're in grave danger now. And you come to the beginning of chapter 6, and he says, so let us review the elementary truths over again, the foundational truths. But be aware, friends, says the writer, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 6, that you're in grave danger now of falling away. Having not progressed in your walk with the Lord, you're now encountering circumstances that are adverse for you, that you don't understand and you don't like. And you are now being tempted to turn away from Christ altogether and to go back to a way that is finished and futile, that Christ has fulfilled, that will do you, not only not do you any good, will do you great and eternal harm. And so he issues a warning in verses 4 through 6. and gives an illustration of that warning in verse 7 through 12. And then we come to verse 13. And we're given an illustration of why we can trust God and must trust God rather than turn to our own way or any other way than Christ. Verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he, God, swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Friends, we need to be reminded that we can trust our God in the midst of every circumstance. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, teaches us that we can trust our God for three reasons. The first reason is this, because we have God's record for that. And the record given, beginning in verse 13, is that of God's dealing with our father Abraham. You may remember from the first part of your Bible, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God made a promise to this man, Abram. And he said, Abram, I am going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a seed, I'm going to give you a people. In you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And at the time God says that to Abram, through you, through your descendants, all the world is going to be blessed. Abram has no male child. 
And this promise, first given in Genesis chapter 12, is repeated now several times in subsequent chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 13, God says this to Abraham. Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. God says to him, go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So God repeats this promise to him. In chapter 13, he still has no child. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, fights a battle, defending the land against no less than four kings who are seeking to take it. He wins this battle, but he's fatigued from defending it, and he he falls to sleep, apparently dejected, because he still has no heir, and he's going through all of this for what? It's It's not clear. And so God appears to Abraham again and says to him in chapter 15, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And at this low point in Abram's life, as he's wondering why this is happening, why don't I have this child? God has made this promise. The Lord says to him, A son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The Bible tells us famously in that chapter, Genesis chapter 15, God reiterates this promise to him that I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a child from your own body through whom the world is going to be blessed. And the Bible tells us famously in verse 6, Abraham, Abram believed God. And he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. And that's repeated in your New Testament several times, most famously in Romans chapter 4, as the example of believing God when we can't see. Now, what did Abraham believe? He believed the promise that God made, even though it wasn't apparent to him how it was going to happen. And this was so monumental an event. God's promise and Abraham's faith, Abraham believing God's promise, that God commemorated it with a sign. And he told Abram to go and make a sacrifice and to divide the sacrifice into two piles and to set it up so that God could ratify this promise, this covenant with Abraham. And so God appeared at night, the Bible tells us in that chapter, as a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch and passed, got passed between the pieces of this sacrifice. And God God was saying that my promise to you is unconditional, Abraham. It does not depend on you. It does not depend on any of the people around you. The fulfillment of this promise to get you where I have told you you're going to go depends on me and me alone and my faithfulness. And to make that absolutely clear, God ratifies this covenant himself with Abraham by walking, as it were, through the pieces of the sacrifice. And if, God is saying, 
I fail to come through, then I, God, will be torn apart like the pieces of this sacrifice. Now, of course, that's impossible. And that's exactly God's point. It's impossible that I will not fulfill what I have promised to you. Abraham's faith, still childless, suffered lapses from time to time. But over time, as was God's design, his faith did grow. His faith towered over the faith of others. God ultimately did give him his son, Isaac. Isaac, whose name means laughter, kind of a punchline. You can't make this stuff up. He finally gives him at this, this age of a of hundred, this son. And then God says incredibly to him, in Genesis chapter 22, after Abraham is now over 100 years old, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. You want me to run which play? You want me to perform what task? Do you have any idea what you're doing? And here's what the Bible tells us. On the third day, Abraham looked and he saw the place in the distance. He took his child. He woke him up. He went to the place, as God had said, to do what God commanded. And on the third day, he looked up. He saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then, and notice this last phrase, we will come back to you. Do you see what's going on here, friends? Abraham believed God. God had said it will be through Isaac. If I tell you then to sacrifice Isaac, then even though you don't know how it will happen, it will happen that Isaac will be around to do what I said is going to happen. And so he says, in the midst of that, we'll come back. book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. Chapter 11, the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But here's what Abram reasoned. That God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You all know what happened, right? He's going to obey God. He knows God is somehow, in ways that I certainly can't see, is going to work this thing out. And then God works it out by supplying a substitute at the very last moment. You want me to run what play? You want me to do what task? You have me stationed where in this life to bring you glory? God, I don't think it's working out. I don't think you know what you're doing. Friends, faith says, I believe God's promise, no matter that I can't see. 
exactly how he's going to work it out. And we have Abram as the supreme example. So important was this event of Abram's trust in God demonstrated now, not just stated, but demonstrated through this act of being willing to sacrifice Isaac. God said this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The New Testament picks this up and gives us an example of the importance of Abraham's faith demonstrated with what he did with his son Isaac. James chapter 2. Was not our ancestor Abraham Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. So friend, we can say I'm a believer all we want. But if we're not willing to play our position and fulfill our task as God has given it to us and not take matters into our own hands and go our own route and leave our post and say we know better. If we are not willing to play that position and fulfill that task that God, a sovereign God, has given to us, we can say we're believers all we want. The truth is we don't believe. And the question then is, do you believe God? Do you trust God in the midst of where he has placed you? We have, friends, God's record for this trust that we are to have in him. That record includes what he has done through his servant, Abraham. But we not only have his record for it, but notice secondly in the outline that we also have his word for it. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 6. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. If you were to put that in a contemporary example, it would be when you go into a courtroom and you say, I will tell the truth, what? So help me. God. We make an oath, we swear by one greater than ourselves. But here's the problem. God had no one greater than himself. Verse 13 has told us there was no one greater for him to swear by. And so he swore by himself. It's my reputation that's at stake here. It's my character, my the character of God that is going to ensure that this happens exactly as I have said. God cannot swear by anyone greater than himself because there is no such person. Men do that all the time. God never can. So why did God, who had already made this promise to Abram, the promise itself was sufficient? 
God having stated it should be sufficient. But God condescends to go even further than his promise to make an oath with this man that this absolutely, surely will be done. Why? Verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Because God wanted, and it indicates a decision to make an oath in reaffirming this covenant that he had with Abraham. It was not a whim, but it was a passionate, sovereign choice by God. And the Greek word that's translated wanted is stronger than wanted. It indicates the purposeful, deliberate exercise of his will. And why did God exercise his sovereign will in giving this oath? Frankly, an unnecessary oath. If God promised, it's going to happen. Here's why, verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. (laughs) What a God we have. He doesn't have to give an oath for anything. If I say it, it will be done. I've proved it over and over again. But on your behalf, for those of you who have fled to him to take hold of the hope offered, that you may be greatly encouraged. And what are those two unchangeable things? God's promise and God's oath. In both of those, it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Because Jesus said, thy word, God's word is truth. Titus chapter 1 says straight up, God does not because God cannot lie. And God gives you this double guarantee, as it were, his promise and his oath. At the top of your outline, you see the title of this message. You all see what it says? Full faith and credit. You know, it's like a double guarantee. And the credit is actually unnecessary in the phrase. It comes from our Constitution. A lot of our laws, particularly dealing with finance, refer to Deposits guaranteed by the FDIC being guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. I don't know how much faith we all have in that. But that's as high as we can go. Full faith and credit. Hear this. But if we have full faith, faith means believe, believability. If we have full faith, if, if the one in whom or the thing in whom we trust is fully trustworthy, then credit from the Latin credo is unnecessary. Credo means simply, I believe. Full faith. And I really do believe. And here's what God has done. God has said, I give you the promise. And even though it's unnecessary, in addition to the promise, I give you the oath as well. And I give this oath so that those who have fled to him can take hold of the hope, the end of verse 18, offered to us so that we may be greatly encouraged. We hold the hope offered to us. What is that hope? The Bible speaks in Titus chapter 2 of the blessed hope. 
the blessed hope of our Lord's return. The blessed hope that one day I will be with him exactly as he has promised. This hope in the Bible is not a subjective, I hope so. I wish that this would happen. It is an objective promise based upon the character of Almighty God. His promise and his oath that what he has started, he will complete in his world and in your life. So when God says, he who has begun a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. Do you believe that? Or do you think that you have to take matters into your own hands? This hope that we have and to which we have turned is not based on us. It is not subjective. It is objective, found in the very character of God. It is a confident expectation that God will fulfill what he has promised. We have God's record for it. We have God's word for it. And lastly, in verses 19 and 20, we have God's anchor for it. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. And he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as you follow the argument that the writer of Hebrews has made, and I trust you have, and I trust it's clear to you. Don't turn back. Don't turn, go your own way. Don't go your own route. Do what God has said. Play your position. Fulfill your task, because I will fulfill my promise. And God has made this doubly sure, his promise, his oath. We have this confident expectation, this hope. But verse 19 says we have this hope. And this hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. An anchor. The time your New Testament was written, an anchor meant plenty to people at that time. It doesn't mean much to you and me. I don't have a boat. Some of you do. But even those of you that do don't have your livelihood depending on it. But they did. Their very livelihood depended on it. A firm anchor. And there were many times where the anchor would, would give way. And when the writer of Hebrews uses this image of an anchor, it resonates with the people to whom he has written. It's an anchor, not an anchor for a boat on the sea, but an anchor for our souls on the seas of life and the various storms and circumstances that God allows to come into our lives. And this anchor is unlike any other anchor with which you are familiar. It is absolutely firm and secure. And notice the middle of verse 19. It, this anchor, enters the inner sanctuary. Now, you remember the inner sanctuary? The temple? And you had the holy place, but then you had this inner place called the most holy place. And who could enter there? One man, one time, each year. And the Bible warns the high priest, don't spend too much time in there. Don't dawdle. 
It's dangerous for a fallen creature to be in the presence of a a holy living God. One man, one time per year, per year, and a limited time at that. Do you all see what's being said in verse 19? The anchor for your soul is firmly affixed to the very throne room of God. The rope that you have to hold on to in Jesus has at the other end himself as our anchor in the Holy of Holies with God. And not just once a year. And not just for a limited time. But every moment of every day. Enters behind, notice the end of verse 19, behind the curtain. This anchor, Jesus, permanent, is behind the veil that kept you and me from the presence of God. And what has Jesus done, verse 20? He's gone before us and he's entered on our behalf. So Jesus is where no mere mortal could go. And he is there for all time, forever, says verse 20. So friends, I ask you, is there anything going on in your life to which Jesus is not intimately involved? To which Jesus cannot always respond. You have this firm secure anchor. At the very throne room of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore you need not. You must not. Take matters into your own hands. His promises to you are absolutely certain. And so you have this confident expectation. Come what may. And so when Jesus said as he did. Before he left the earth, in my father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back. I'll take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. It means that in the storms of life, That God Almighty calls you and me to enter. Let me repeat that. The storms of life that God Almighty calls you and me to enter. You see, that thing you're in is not an accident. That person you're with is not an accident. That boss you have is not an accident. That government that rules is not an accident. All of these things are by the design and on the timetable of God Almighty. And he calls you to storms of life that he himself has prepared. You all remember that Jesus told the disciples to get in a boat. And when they got in a boat, what happened? A storm. Boy, I wonder if Jesus had looked at the weather report that day. He demonstrated he controls the weather. He knew the storm. And he called them to go into that storm. And he calls you into the storms of your life as well. 
You're able to endure those storms because you see beyond the particular circumstance, like Abraham, who was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose builder and architect is God. But get this. Paul wrote to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will go through these storms. We'll have difficulty in some form or another. And the question, when not if, you're in that storm that God Almighty has called you to, is how will you respond? Will you trust Him? Do you believe Him? Is He an anchor for your soul? Or will you take matters into your own hands and go your own route? It's my prayer before God that this message from God's Word is arresting someone who is thinking right now of going their own route. That this message is encouraging someone who is on the brink of discouragement because of the things that God has allowed into your life. And you're contemplating going a route contrary to what God has assigned. It's my prayer that God who has prepared all circumstances, will use this circumstance that he's prepared to arrest one who's going in the wrong direction and will keep one who may be contemplating that wrong direction. And then thirdly, to encourage the hearts of God's people who are called by his name and who have Jesus Christ, none other than Jesus Christ, as an anchor for our soul every moment of every day. We're going to pray, and then we're going to stand, and we're going to sing a final song. That final song is one many of you are familiar with. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. But did you know the writer of that song based a couple of the verses? We're going to sing all four on this passage. The second verse says this, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds... Now, have you remember this phrase? My anchor holds where? Within the veil. What veil is that? It's the curtain. It's the curtain that Jesus has now gone beyond. That nobody else could go beyond. And he is our anchor. And our anchor holds within the veil. And the next verse says, his oath, his covenant, his blood. Support me in the whelming flood of the storms of life. And when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and my stay. Let's thank the Lord, and then we'll stand and sing together. Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word and for the profundity of the passage that we've looked at that we can't do justice to. But I trust, Lord, that we as your people have seen your message for us to encourage us to continue a faithful walk with you. Lord, to help the one who is contemplating taking her own route or his own route in contradiction to what you have said because we no longer trust. Oh, Lord, arrest that in this sacred moment for the one who is discouraged 
because they're looking at their limited vantage point rather than seeing the big picture. Help them to be encouraged by the faith of our father Abraham and the reminder that you always fulfill your promises, always, without exception, in your good time. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.